Good morning. Let's say another word of prayer together as we get ready to get in God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name asking that you would guide us, that you would lead us closer to you, that you would help us. Lord, we know that you are good and that your name is majestic, Father. And yet consistently we are um, bombarded with different thoughts that can make us question that reality and question so many other things, Father. But we know in all things that you are guiding your people through your spirit. And we pray that your spirit is among us today, Father, that we would feel your presence, that as, as your word is shared, that we would all be able to walk away making decisions if we need to, to be closer to you, making affirmations of praises to you, whatever um, we need in this moment, we pray that we could get, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So every year there was a family that would consistently uh, host Thanksgiving dinners in the community I grew up in. And for several years, I never got an invite. You know, probably has a lot to do with my character. Actually, I don't know why they never invited me, but they didn't invite me. And one year I finally got the coveted invite. It was the beginning of my ninth grade year and I got an invite. And I remember going to the local park that I used to play basketball at consistently and telling my other friends that I got an invite to our mutual friends Thanksgiving um, gathering. And then it just one by one, everyone was like, I got an invite, I got an invite, I got an invite, I got an invite, I got an invite. And, you know, basketball is a five on five um, thing. So I'm like, that's 10 people right here. They have a large family, like four kids. So I know they got the four kids over there and I know they bring their cousins. I'm like, there's no way they could feed all these people. So I did the righteous thing and I rescinded my invite. I said, you know, I don't want to go. I don't want to burden them. You know, I have a family. They're going to feed me. It's going to be good. I got loved ones. Someone else could grab this spot. So after some time after Thanksgiving, after the holiday seasons, um, the mother saw me and she said, why didn't I come to the Thanksgiving thing? And I shared what I just shared with you guys. Like, I wanted to be considerate. I wanted her to know that I didn't want to take a plate from anyone else because my family was able to provide. And she leaned in and she was like, again, my I didn't grow up religious. She's like, why did you rob me of my blessing? And I was like, what are you talking about? And then she can explain blessing. And I was like, okay. And then she's like, I'm like, how did I rob you? you? You were able to bless someone else. She said, but I wanted to bless you. So anyhow, the next year I got another invite, sophomore year. This time I came, but I came with food. Because I'm like, you know, she's going to bless me. I'm going to bless her. It's going to be mutual blessing going on. It's going to be amazing. So I come in there with my pound cake, lemon pound cake. And then I walk in and I'm like, here's my gift to the family. She's like, why you brought that here? I'm like, I wanted to share. I thought we were blessing people. That's what we do. And she said, I wanted to bless you. God has been so good to me, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to bless you. And then so we walked into the house and the house was packed. But she, this is South Florida, by the way, so it's never cold in November. We went into the backyard, and there were more people. And for the next three hours, we just ate, we joked, we laughed. And it, I just seen so many people that I thought moved away in our community. And it was such a unifying moment. And I remember walking away from that Thanksgiving situation. I was like, I don't know what kind of job they have. It don't look like they have a excellent job but they were able to provide for everyone we got seconds we got thirds and we were forced to take things home with us 
I'm trying to leave. I'm like, no, nah, I don't got anything. My mom already cooked. They gave me like a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm like, all right, man. And I came home and, you know, I'm one of four boys. So we ate it all. <clears throat> we ate it all. I share that because that imagery of creating space for everyone, everyone feeling like they belong, everyone feels like they welcome. That is a strong image that God is trying to share consistently in the scriptures. This parable that we're going to look at is going to explain this in greater length. And so today we're talking about homecoming. Many of you are familiar with homecoming from high school, whether you were a homecoming king or queen, or you've seen someone who was king or queen or homecoming court. But homecoming really comes from the idea of coming home. Soldiers were away for a long time and they were able to come home and they were welcome home. And so many of us long for a homecoming. For those of you who believe in the resurrection, who believe in the new hope, who believe that Jesus is going to come back one day, you are longing your homecoming when he unites heaven and earth together. Let's go to Luke chapter 15. This is a parable. Parables are stories to make a point. This is a rather popular parable. So many people have taught on this parable. So many people are aware of this parable. Maybe you didn't even grow up religious, but I'm going to read this parable. and you're going to, I heard this story before. That's how popular this parable is. It's the parable generally titled the, par- the prodigal son. And we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. The context here is Jesus is having table fellowship with people who are sinners. And the religious leaders are like, this can't be the Messiah, because if he was the Messiah, he wouldn't be having de- or table fellowship, partnership with these people and breaking bread with these people. And so Jesus shares two parables, one about a sheep, another about a coin. And then he shares this parable right here about two brothers and the father's relationship to the two. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent some time, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I am here starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. How do you hear dancing? They probably were tapping on their feet. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, him, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you've never gave me even a young goat. So how could I so I could celebrate with my friends? But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Downward mobility. This is a story of downward mobility for the younger son. You know, there's times in life where we experience things that go from bad to worse, where, you know, you have that. I talked about compounding righteousness. Sometimes in life you get compounding debt. Like you pay for one debt with the other debt and the other debt and things just get tough and life gets difficult. And so this is what's going on for the young son. He initially starts off and just makes a very bold and audacious request. He says, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, many of us are familiar with how inheritance works. Usually you get it when someone dies. He is essentially saying to his father, man, I wish you were dead. Just give me the stuff that I want from you. And they did more like he broke him a check for however many denarii, etc. He took the land that his father owned. His father divided the land that he was going to give to his son anyway when he died. And that son took that land and sold it and used the resources to go to a distant land and party it up. Can you imagine if you're the father and you sold a piece of your land to your son who wished basically wished you were dead and someone else is now on the land doing the farm work there? Every time you look over, you're like, that was supposed to be my son's and now he's not here. And that used to be his land. So the father, I can imagine, is feeling all sorts of embarrassment. Your son wishes you were dead. Your son took the stuff. I can imagine the father is feeling every morning when he looks out into the field, he feels sort of defeated. Like, man, my son walked away. But then on the other end, the son got all of this money. What do you do with money when you're young? You go live it up. We don't know how young he is, but I suspect he's really young. You know, in um, South Florida, I think it's true up here in Maine as well, you would get financial aid checks. All of us are familiar with stimulus checks. I know a number of people, and I could be this way too, when I start swiping and I stop looking at the account. You know, like, you know, initially you got that deposit, let's just say 2300 it's in your account. And you're like, man, Chili's was $50, but you're like, I got 2300 <laughs> Those shoes were 140, but I got 2300. That random date, movie, dinner, dessert, and extra dessert, $300. I, but I got $2300. Oh, we wanted that new painting, and I'm not even really into art. $200, whatever, swipe. My kids want video games, swipe. Now you're wondering, I don't know how much money I got. Swipe. <laughs> I'm going to keep buying things, swipe. I'm going to hope this works, swipe. Our family really needs groceries. Swipe. And then finally you look, and now in the modern day, if you connect your phone to your app, you're going to get a text message. <laughs> you are overdrawn. Transaction denied. I'm almost certain this young man, he took all his money, and he was living it up, taking from his little 
couch. And he's just like, yeah, this is great. We're living it up. I don't know what they did back then. Maybe they rode a whole bunch of cows together. And they were like, this is amazing. And then one day he goes to ride the cow again and no money. And things outside of his control started happening. There was a famine. Most of us in here, we've never experienced a famine if you were born and raised in this country. The closest thing we even got near to a famine is what we saw in Texas a couple of years ago where there was actually a lack of food. And the whole nation was alarmed. And so many people came and brought Texas food, which is amazing. But there's a famine. Imagine what it's like to go outside and say, man, I don't know if there's enough food for everybody here. He started starving and he sold himself as a servant and he started working with pigs. And again, this is Jesus telling this story. So this is a Jewish person who probably grew up with deep convictions that you don't get near unclean animals. But it got so tough, so hard. He's like, I work with the pigs. Some of you grew up around a farm. I've never grew up around a farm, but I've seen YouTube. And I looked at what pigs ate. It does not. I, I, I've never been that hungry and I've been very hungry. You know, the times I've, I, my, the hungriest I ever got was ramen noodle. You know, when you look at ramen noodle and you're like, that's really good right now. That's when you know you're struggling. But I think even wanting to eat the food of the pigs is really tough. So what happened outside of his control? There was a famine and no one did anything for him. He's in an area where people are not practicing hospitality. And again, this is very important because that world was not known. You know, hospitality to the degree that we see now in this country is a very Christian thing. Tom Holland, a noted historian, said it took about four year, 400 years after Christianity for the world to really get behind the idea of practicing hospitality and loving your neighbor. And so you have the religious leaders sitting here listening to this story, and they're like, yes, the young son broke the commandments, you know, com- Exodus um, 20, verse 12 says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And so the religious leaders are like, he broke the rules and he's suffering. Good. This is amazing. You know, in today's society, we don't even bat our eyes at disobeying our parents, right? It's like a rite of passage. You're like, at what point are you going to get old enough to tell your parents, you don't, you're not the boss of me. Get out of my face. But here... This was such a huge scandal. So not only did he wish his father was dead, he dishonored his dad by even making that request. And again, the context here is the religious leaders are saying this is what it's like to live a life of sin, completely oblivious to the presence of God. So what did the young man do? He followed what I believe is the old adage that all of us follow. Since I was a kid, Hollywood has been pumping this one message. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. That is the message I've seen in every single movie for the last 36 years. Follow your heart. And the younger son followed his heart. Now, I do want to be very, very mindful. We want to avoid extremes. Emotions are a good thing. They're a right thing. They come from God. However, we can't only make decisions based off our emotions. We need to add in other components. How do we assess our hearts as followers of Jesus? This is an important question because this young man basically wished his dad was dead. And he's like, I'm going to follow my heart. How do we make a good decision? Let's go to Jeremiah 17, verse 1. This is really important when it comes to how do we assess our hearts when it comes to is this going to be something I'm going to follow? Jeremiah 17, 1. Jeremiah here is talking to uh, a nation that's about to go, on, about to, go to go to exile. 
Jeremiah 17, 1. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their heart. Jeremiah is saying Israel's sins, Israel's heart is so hard that to write on their heart is like writing on a tablet. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, well, I know my heart is in um, hard. I know if I soft. I know it responds. I know it's good because I feel like it's good. Let's go to Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? That is challenging when you feel like your whole life you've been told trust your heart. Trust your heart. Trust your gut. You know, I had to grow and see my character grow to where I can trust my heart. 16 years old, I was told to follow your heart, do what you want to do. I picked up a rock and there were cars driving by and I slung that rock. I hit a car and I ran for my life. Praise God I didn't get caught. Praise God I didn't get in trouble. But I should not have followed my heart in that moment, even though that was my authentic self that threw that rock. At least that's what I felt like. You know. 16 years old, same year, the second time I got suspended that school year, my heart said, this teacher, my geometry teacher, is like, oh, we're going to talk about Pythagoras' theorem and all this other stuff. And I said, you know, it's been a long day. I don't care about Pythagoras. He's been dead for a while. <laughs> so I stood up and I left. I grabbed my bags. I left. I came home. My mom asked me what happened. I said, it's an early release day. And... I went to bed and I enjoyed my life. Next day, I got suspended. I got probably suspended that day, but I wasn't there. So <laughs> when I showed up, ready to learn now, it said, go home. I'm like, oh, go home. What's going on? And then I had to tell my mom. And anyhow, it was tough. But I was following my heart. My heart was fully persuaded. I should not be there learning from this person. About Pythagoras. Who thinks about Pythagoras? Nobody. <laughs> Jesse. Jesse's the only one who thinks about Pythagoras. But none, none of us think about Pythagoras on a given day. And when, the moment they led with Pythagoras, I wanted to leave. My heart was deceitful. It needed to be trained. My emotions needed to be trained. At that age, I wasn't ready to make good decisions based off what I felt. Even though in the moment, it felt good, right, and just the way it's supposed to be, because that's what I felt. Yeah. Now, as I'm maturing, I realize, okay, I got I to gotta assess my heart. Let's go to Proverbs 4, verse 23. See, the young man followed his heart. Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We can start trusting our emotions once we make an intentional habit of guarding our hearts. How do we guard our hearts? How do we make sure that we are not the people who are led astray by emotions that do not find alignment with the will of Jesus? We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I will say that the young son did not guard his heart in the area of believing a lie about his father. The lie that he believed about his father was this. Life would be better without him. And in that short period when he had the money, it probably was. 
But that's usually how it works sometimes. Sometimes we do follow our hearts and maybe it isn't alignment, isn't in alignment with God, but actually life feels better. Just like it just felt better. It was good, at least for a season. It was good and it was right. And I should have rebelled a long time ago. But then over the long haul, over the long duration, you start to realize, I think I regret that decision. What did the younger son do in this moment? It says in verse 17, he came to himself. A kind of repentance. It doesn't say repentance, but a kind of repentance. What did he realize that he probably forgot? He realized that his father was good. He probably forgot his dad was good, but he realized in that moment, he's like, my dad got all these servants who do all these things and he feeds them, takes care of them. Like, gosh, I could at least find hospitality even with him. And so I'm going to go back to him. Let's go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. If you're looking for Psalms and you have a Bible, kind of close it, go to the middle. You're either going to get Isaiah or the Psalms. If you got Isaiah, do the middle one more time, and then you might get the Psalms. If you're looking for it on your phone, P, S, most phones, P, S, most phones. Um, Psalm 103. We're just going to read a couple of verses from here. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's go down to verse 19 of that same psalm. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom's rule over all. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord. You know, this psalm is an ode to the goodness of God. It's just like, oh, praise the Lord. Like, God, you are worthy to be praised. We hear that. You know, sometimes I think sometimes we feel uncomfortable. We are we tend to be more of a bookish church. And here's what I mean by bookish church. We all like read the Bible, but we're not like high on the emotions. Right. Like we even get a little suspicious if you're too emotional. If you get like too fired up, you're like, man, I so love Jesus. We're like, where's that passage in the Bible that says you love Jesus? Like we're, we're very just we, we just like want it in the Bible before we can even confirm it. Right. <laughs> And yet you see in this psalm just this deep heart, this deep love, this deep emotion. And what is the psalmist praising God for? He says he forgives all his sins. He heals. He redeems. He crowns. He satisfies. I think a lot of times we experience these things, but because it's not naturally how we go about in our worship to add emotions to our worship, we end up not developing the emotions that we need to develop that we can't even trust our hearts anymore because we have undeveloped emotions. And so the young man takes responsibility and from there he goes to his dad and he's like, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to humble myself. You know, in verse, uh, in this Psalm, we didn't read verse eight, but verse eight is the most quoted passage in the entire Bible. Verse eight in this Psalm talks about the Lord who is slow to anger, loving and kindness, um, compassionate and all the other good things here. And I think in that moment, the younger son realized this is my dad. My dad is compassionate. My dad is loving. 
Now, I do want to take a moment. Many of us have complicated relationships with our fathers. We have complicated relationships with our parents. And reading a passage like this can be very difficult because you're like, if I ever went to my earthly father, it would go poorly. It would go horribly. This actually hurts me even knowing that I was not able to have a father like this. I really want to say in this moment, we see you. We understand the pain that you have. Redirect your attentions to the father that Jesus calls father. As challenging as that may be. But you know, the other thing is the young son didn't even have a good view of his dad. Like he still had an incomplete view of his dad. He's like, my dad will take me back as a servant at the very least. I'm fully persuaded he would. But what does the father actually do? He has a joyous response. You know, verses 20 through 24, the father sees his son from a long way off and he runs out to go see his son. Most commentators say it's for one reason and one reason only, to shield his son from embarrassment. Think about this. The father was embarrassed by his son. You know, like you're in the community, if you have to, I got two, two boys. If Brian all of a sudden gets missing and he left because everyone's like, yo, Steve, Brian said he wished you were dead. Where's Brian? He left. He's already gone. Is he with you, Jules? He's gone? Brian left? See? <laughs> Gosh, Brian. Uh, but imagine if Brian says, Dad, I wish you were dead. A lot of you guys would say, hey, I see Stephen. Where's Brian? Every time I see a lot of you guys, how's it going with Brian? I would feel the embarrassment every day that somewhere in my son and I's relationship, it became dysfunctional and that he's not present. Now, imagine if Brian decided that, man, I want to get reconnected to you, Dad. I want to get reconnected. And in every place we go, I never let him walk in alone out of him walking with me. And if anyone is tempting to like, man, I'm going to shame Brian for wanting to come back home. I'll be right next to my son like, no, no, no. That's not even important right now. He and I already talked it out. He's, he's back here. Brian will be like, man, my dad protected me even though I, he, I embarrassed my dad. This is what the father did. He runs out to the city. and He's like, I'm going to walk through so, no, so um, the younger son doesn't have to have the walk of shame. He's like, okay, everyone's going to say I'm back. What, what, uh, he runs out. The father, before the son can even announce his confession, is already in the mode of reconciliation. He's like, bring the best robe. Get a ring for this dude. Put sandals on his feet. He is trying to fully restore him, not as a servant, but as a son. Full restoration. And you got to understand, in most households, who usually owns the best robe? The one who makes the most money, which is usually the parent, right? Like, he is like... Grab my robe and put it on him. Put my robe and put this on this child here. The father is filled with compassion when he sees his son. He's not saying, oh, look at that derelict finally coming around. Ooh, that knucklehead. What was going on with him? Oh, that, he, he blew all the money. Now look at this guy over here who owns our property because of this son right here. Instead, he's just filled with compassion and he's like, Let's come back. You're, you're, you're reoriented into the family. Here's the thing that I think is really challenging for a lot of us, especially if you're, you're of the old covenant variety. God is joyful. God is happy when people change. He's not like, man, I missed an opportunity to smoke this kid. <laughs> he is like happy when people change. He is happy when people want to draw near to him. He is filled with joy. 
Dallas Willard says God is a great tidal wave of joy constantly washing through him. Like God is happy. I think sometimes we may not be happy people change. We may not be happy, but that's you. That's not God. And I think it's very important that we understand that this is the God that we serve. He says, my son was dead, but now he's alive. He's talking about his son is experiencing a sort of resurrection here. And what is the resurrection? Reorientation into the community of believers. And this banquet is one of the main pictures of what God says is shalom and fulfilling the promises of Abraham. This is what table fellowship is supposed to look like. If and whenever we repent, God is always joyful. God is never like, man, thank it. I wish he didn't repent so I could have like roasted him or whatever else that we have that we may personally have. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Like he takes no pleasure, zero pleasure in the death of the wicked, zero pleasure. I think that's really important for us to understand no matter where we are in our journey. And if you're thinking, man, it's been tough and God is angry with me, sad with me, et cetera, et cetera. How do we reconcile the wrath of God in this teaching and everything else? I would say first lean into the reality that God is probably joyful that you want to change. God is joyful that you want to draw near to him. We can have a theological conversation about the wrath of God, but God is generally joyous when we want to change. So that should be the end of the story, right? Like happy ending. Son came back. Brother was fired off. His brother came back. It's great. The whole family's partying. They're having like, what's a really cool snack to have when everyone's happy? I like to think lollipops are pretty cool. And, you know, like everyone's like having lollipops and we're like all excited and it's good. That's not what happens. The older son is out in the field, the field that his dad left him. And he's cranking the field and he's like, hey, there's, I hear dancing and I hear music. And instead of going to go see what's going on, he asks his servant to find out what's going on. So you can clearly see he doesn't like dancing. Maybe not. I just read that in there. Maybe he does like dancing. He just was really busy doing what he was doing. Okay. So the older brother is angry with who? Everybody, it seems. He's angry with his younger brother. He's angry with his father. He doesn't even have the, the compassion like his father. He tells his father, instead of saying, my brother came back, he's like, your son. He doesn't refer to his brother as his brother. He's like, your son. You treat your son better than you do me. Look. I've been faithful to you. I've never deserted you. I've been right here doing the right thing. And then this guy comes back and he gets a calf. He gets to party. He gets to wear your robe. Everyone's wilding out and having a great time because he's back. But I've been right here in the field working your field and doing your will. He's like, what is wrong with you? You see, the older son is so disappointed with his father's decision and behavior. He's like, you're kind to the undeserving. Like that, that your younger son does not deserve your kindness. If anything, I deserve your kindness. Stephen Davowitzkitz did this research. This is 2017, so it's old. I don't know what the research would be right now. He did a research 
about a decade's worth from 2007 to 2017 on Google searches um, connected to questions about God. Here are the questions that came up the most. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God need so much praise? Why does God hate me? Why did God make me this color? Why did God make me this orientation, sexual orientation? Why did God make me ugly? You notice the common thread? Disappointment with God. People are Google searching like, I'm just disappointed with God. And I would argue perhaps the greatest threat to our faith is not doubting God, but being disappointed with God. Like just feeling so disappointed with God. I'm not into gifts, but a good gift I can appreciate. The one time I opened up my heart to get a gift that I really wanted, I was very clear on what I wanted. I told this loved one what I wanted. They said they wanted to get it for me, and I was thrilled with excitement. I'm going to let a little secret out because I think life is better when we don't have secrets. I was born December 16th. Okay. So on my birthday, I was expecting this gift, looking forward to this gift, excited about this gift. And so this loved one comes and a brand new Air Jordan box is in his hand. I open it up. I look and I'm like, these are the Jordan 10s. I lift them up. Something is off with these Jordan 10s. Oh, no. Michael Jordan seems to have gained a lot of weight in his jump, man. <laughs> the material doesn't feel like how my other Jordans feel. This loved one is like, you really like these shoes. I'm like, these are fake. And this loved one was like, no, I just got them for a good deal. I'm like, these are fake. Then you guys remember throwback jerseys? Am I dating myself? Throwback jerseys. These are jerseys that you would wear of players who've been stopped playing long after I, before I was even born. But, you know, it was all the thing in high school. You want to go to school with your authentic throwback jersey. I requested, shout out to my New England peeps, Larry Bird. I wanted Larry Bird. I had some Air Force Ones that were forest green, like the Celtics color. And I'm like, let me get a Larry Bird throwback jersey. So I'm already disappointed with the fake Jordans. I lift up this Larry Bird jersey from Walmart, not Mitchell and Ness, but from Walmart. I look at it and he's like, it fits, right? And I'm like, man, if I had the ability to do force choke, I would have just <laughs> brought him down to his knees. I was so disappointed. And then my mother looks at me and she's like, you're not going to say thank you. I'm like, he's lucky I'm not going to say anything else. And I just stormed into my room and I was like, this dude disrespected my entire life. You know, the feeling of being let down is actually one of the hardest emotional experiences. Like when you're let down, it just hurts so much. Like I'm like, that's why I don't ever want gifts. I don't ever want to feel like oh, I can't even get on with my day because all I'm thinking about. Look, how many years later, 20 years later, and I still think about this. I see fake Jordans and I just get back there like, like, how dare this dude? And I love him still. But it's like. The older son had probably an expectation of who the father was, who his father was, and he was so disappointed with what he saw. He's like, I can't even party with you. I can't even be near your presence right now. 
you, you got to understand the father went out to see him. That is not very normal. Usually the other way around. The son goes seeks the father, but the father went to go see him. You know, we all have experienced varying disappointments, probably in our covenant with God. You know, I've had close friends who have given birth to children with disabilities, and that's tough. I've had close friends who've lost babies. That's real tough. I've had close friends, and I'm talking about people who have given their hearts to Jesus, given their lives to Jesus. I've had them be abandoned by loved ones. That's tough. I've had um, friends who passed before their time and everyone's kind of wrestling with like the whole community of believers pray for this person. And we were in larger congregations, like 300 people. And you're like, how did this young child or this young person, this 16 year old who, who passed away because of cancer, the whole church for two months straight was praying that God wouldn't do this. And it becomes challenging. And then there's personal challenges. Things you guys prayed for, things that you like, God, sift my heart. I want to be the right sort of person to be this person, to be in this moment. And God says no. Or God does something unexpected. You see, what the older son is struggling with is God's kindness. But I think, big picture, sometimes we're just disappointed with what God does. Jonah, the, the prophet, he understood that. We're not going to read it, but in Jonah um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Jonah is just so dis- disappointed with God's kindness to the Ninevites that he's like, man, I wish I was dead. I'd rather not have seen your kindness in this situation. But here's the million dollar question. Is God intentionally disappointing us? Is he intentionally scandalizing us? The word disillusion has gotten a bad rap. In recent times, we have all tried our very best not to ever feel disillusion. But I think it's actually a gift from God that we experience some degree of disillusion. What is disillusionment? Disillusion is when we lose the illusion. It's what's ha- it, it is what happens when you take a lie about the world, about yourself, about those you love, about God, and replace it with the truth. Disillusionment occurs when God shatters our fantasies, tears down our idols, dismantles our cupboard cutouts, It is the result of discovering that God does not conform to our expectations, but rather exists as a mystery beyond those expectations. The God we're supposed to have versus the God who actually is. He didn't he had a father in his head that was supposed to respond a certain way that he couldn't see who his actual father was. And be joyful and grateful for who his father. The younger son, I mean, the older son wanted judgment. The older son wanted stuff from his dad. The older son wanted whatever degree of justice. He couldn't see what his father was trying to point to him. Our brother just, our son, my son, your brother just came back and got reoriented into our family. That's way more important than you getting a goat to celebrate with your friends. Now, some of you argue, but why didn't the father give him a goat? Man, that's, that's the mystery of life right there. Why does God give certain people goats and other people don't get goats? Why does God make LeBron James 6 say and jump with great vertical? You know how much I love basketball? I would love to get LeBron's natural ability. I would be like this philanthropist. Maybe not, right? <laughs> like, who knows? But I would love it. Some of you guys have natural giftings and other people don't. Do I get upset? Should I get upset? The call would be no, I would not get upset. In this context, the religious leaders wanted the sinners condemned. Yet what did they experience? Mercy. 
Jesus' whole ministry. The religious leaders are looking at Jesus, pull these outcasts in, and they're like, this is off. Don't say this is the kingdom of God. Don't say this represents God. Don't say this is the way it's supposed to be. Something is completely off here. And Jesus is like, it's not, it's not God that's off. It's you guys' perspective. Many of you are familiar with the song, Reckless Love of God. You know, it goes, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Come on, Steve. You, I, I read that instead of singing it. I, I spared you guys. This, that song comes from this chapter in the Gospel of Luke. You know, the most compelling person in this entire story is the father. He protected the younger son. He sought the older son. He told the older son, everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. You've always been here. I have not failed to take notice of who you were and the type of person you are. But our, our young, our, my younger son, your brother, has come back and I want him to experience us. The father went out to the older son to bring the older son back into the family now. See, the older son is like, I never left the family. Like, In this moment, you have. You're scandalized by what I've done for your younger brother. Come back into the family. You know, God is constantly seeking us. Now, on the human level, the younger brother and the older brother are going to have to talk it out. They're going to have to work it out. They're going to have to have reconciliation conversations. They're going to have to work in the unity conversations. All of that is important. But the father's spirit is, I want my family together, even if it's messy. I want my family united, even if it's messy. Homecoming in, in the kingdom of God is that the house of God is big enough for everybody. Amen. The house of God is big enough for everybody. I said earlier, how do you judge your emotions? How do you judge your heart? After you feel whatever your emotions are, pray for guidance. Yeah. Pray, God, help me. Is this from you? Meditate on scripture. I know sometimes we, we could feel like, man, I don't want to meditate on scripture. My heart is meditate on scripture. How, how, well, a good meditation practice, is there anything in scripture that is calling me not to give into this emotion? If I can't find it, amen. Is there any scripture that I could think of that I could reach out to someone that says I should give it, I should do this emotion? Meditate on it. And then get advice. Now, it's very important. Advice is advice. That doesn't mean you have to take people's advice. You could just get other spiritual people and say, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? How do we deal with disillusionment? Disillusionment. This is even harder. Pray. Be vulnerable with God. There's so many psalms where the psalmists communicate the disappointment, what, what God is doing. Be vulnerable. You don't need to be disrespectful, but be vulnerable. Journal. Guys, journaling, whether, or if you're a long walk, talking to yourself kind of person, crank out to talk to yourself. But journaling helps. And this is the hardest thing in terms of dealing with disillusionment. Resilience. Being around long enough to see the potential perspective that God was trying to show you. Sometimes things get so tough. In that one moment, we couldn't get past that emotional moment that we quit before we even see what God was doing there. And so I want to encourage us to be resilient. Say, okay, I'm going to keep trusting that at its core, God is good. At its core, God is good. And I'm going to see what comes from that. Let's have a moment of reflection. And then we'll pray for communion.